Welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show podcast. Think of it like a magazine or a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. From politics to pop culture, healthcare to legal issues, it's all here. And my behind-the-wheel chats are personal observations created especially for you on podcast only. Enjoy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, joining us now is somebody who isn't merely somebody who reviews theater, but Jesse Green is somebody who is an encyclopedia when it comes to cross-referencing of culture, uh, literature, science, art, you name it. When you're reading a review by Jesse Green, sometimes you're getting an education not merely in a particular play or performance, but the entire background and context as to what the playwright was trying to communicate. And I saw recently, and I have it in front of me in print, a magnificent article that Jesse Green wrote called Let Us Tell You a Story, What Would American Theater Be Without Its Jewish Actors, Playwrights, and Directors, which exposes the ambivalence uh, of many of our most stunning contributors to the American theater in terms of dealing with their assimilated or lack thereof experiences Jews and how that informed their art. Jesse Green of the New York Times, welcome back to the Lisa Wexler Show. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. Well, it's really a pleasure, Jesse. I want to know, was this your idea to write the story or did an editor come to you and suggest it? Well, that's a funny thing, Lisa. Uh, It was not my idea, although, of course, I think about these issues all the time. And as a Jew... I've spent a lifetime thinking about, you know, uh, the contrast between what I knew to be the story of the Jewish creation of much of what we think of as American theater and the apparent lack of comfort in uh, sort of being out and proud and talking about being Jewish. So uh, it had been on my mind forever. But no, uh, an editor at uh, T Magazine, which is the style magazine of the Times, came to me with this idea, and um, interestingly, he's not Jewish, um, nor were any of the other editors who worked on it. Well, it's interesting because that's that's really something. But, you know, it starts how Jewish people built the American theater as we know it. Here we are. How did it come to be on this page 136, 137, with Alan Menken and Deborah Messing Mm. and, oh, my goodness, all these people that are popping out at me? all these faces, 
Joel Gray. Well, you know, how, I, how did that? I, I mean, how did you get that fortune? You. Yeah, tell me. Uh, I I had nothing to do with it. Listen, I got to, uh, I I had talks with my editor there as far back as last uh, February about a piece, and there really wasn't a clear idea what it should be. So I spent months just thinking about it, and what did I want to say, and what would I draw? And you know, the subject is too large for an article, but you know, I would have to you know pick something. Meanwhile, they were all thinking about how they would illustrate it, and to my delight and surprise and feeling of uh, gratitude, what they chose to do was to celebrate Jewishness and Jewish artists uh, and to say, yes, we're in a very troubled time uh, uh, in which the conflicts that I was mentioning earlier are exacerbated by the uh, incredible rise in anti-Semitism and by events in the world. Um, we're not going to hide. We're going to put together a, a very large and beautiful photograph. And if you look at it online, you know, with, with uh, videos added to it and things like that, to say, yes, here we are. On the cover of the magazine, it says, uh, or uh, it says, here we are. Um, I'm sorry, not on the cover, but in the story itself. And, and to uh, work against this hiding and this sort of fear about coming forward from an assimilated status that many of us feel. So uh, that was all them. I had no say in, I didn't even know they were doing it, honestly. I did not have any say in who was chosen. I want to put that out there because I've been getting a lot of emails from people who wish they were <laughs> in the photograph. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and I'm looking at some of these names, and Julie Banco is from Fairfield. We've interviewed her a few times. She's certainly an up-and-coming star. Alan Menken lives in Ridgefield. I'm looking at all these people here, and a lot of them I've had on my show over the years, and what a thrill it is. Mark Shaman has been on, and I'm looking at all these people, and it's uh, – it's, and Ben Pasek, Pasek and Paul, Justin Paul graduated from Staples High School in Westport. I know him. So the whole thing is really something. Adina Menzel's been on. It's really fun to see this. I love this picture. It's amazing. Yeah, it's, it. it's a, I'm sure it wasn't easy to put together. And I know that there were a lot of people who I, I learned later they wanted to have uh, represented, but just simply were not able to uh, be there on the day that was chosen. So let's talk about Arthur Miller. Jesse Green, uh, I want I want to talk about Arthur Miller, who, by the way, of Roxbury, Connecticut, um, and yes. Arthur and Arthur Miller. I mean, between uh, Death of a Salesman, one of the most seminal works in American theater, full stop, but also The Crucible and all of this amazing oeuvre. Uh, none of his characters are very obvious, are obviously in any way Jewish, and yet you say that Arthur Miller had to have been and was informed by his Jewish background as a writer. And I want to hear what you have to say. Well, first of all, uh, just to enhance your point, it, it wasn't really until way later in his career after he was already you know, established as a great American playwright that he included characters who were uh, specifically Jewish in plays like Incident at Vichy, and uh, the semi-autobiographical play about him and Marilyn Monroe called After the Fall. But before that, in the plays you mentioned, uh, you know, none of those characters are Jewish. They do not have Jewish names. They are not given any details of Jewish life. However, I, I hope that if you go to any of those shows and you listen to them, you can hear the Jewishness in them. Now, this isn't just because he was Jewish and his parents were born, you know, in Boland, in the shtetl. Um, nor is this just because, uh, you know, they live in circumstances that many 
Jews of that period did uh, live. But the uh, speech rhythms, the mode of argumentation, the kinds of, as I describe it, you know, when I, whenever I see a death of a salesman, I feel like I'm back at a Seder at my grandparents' house. <laughs> Uh, just listening to the bickering and sort of the humor mixed with the bickering and the the way oh. all, all of the cycles around eating, it's, it's you know, sort of unavoidably Jewish. And, of course, one understands why he didn't make them Jewish. He did not want to become known at that time as the Jewish playwright. He wanted to be the American playwright, and he got it. My grandfather, my, pop, my Papa Jack, was a traveling salesman. And, really? Yes, so he was. And that, you know what? And in the and in the thirties and the forties and the fifties, he made a living. After, in the middle of the depression, when everything sort of you know crashed, he had something mm-hmm. called uh, Levy Millinery on Thirty First Street, which was the hat building in the city. And he and his brother, my uncle Al, but he was the one that was the traveling salesman. And for five or six weeks at a time, he would sell hats to black women in the South going to church. That's how he made a living. Hmm. It's really something. Well, that's a fascinating story, Lisa, because it shows both – it shows at least two things. One is that, you know, there was a time when the career options open to ambitious Jewish people were not what they are now. And there was a time when, for instance, uh, you know, black people could not necessarily purchase things Mm-hmm. from mainstream white institutions. Mm-hmm. So there was a kind of alliance form there that I think we see playing out in our politics as well. Uh, but the, the, what, what happened later is what began to fascinate me and where I came into the picture as a young person, which was um, sort of sensing all the Jewishness in the theater and yet looking for the content that told me that it was Jewish. And it, for me, it didn't really begin to happen until, in, in my personal experience, until... I saw Fiddler on the Roof, of yeah. course, yeah. As, as a kid. But as I described in the piece, kind of humorously, the uh, rabbi's wife at my temple would write musicals in which she basically stole the music from Broadway shows and put new Jewish lyrics on them, which were kind of hilarious. Well, the How Are Things in Glockamora, uh, you yeah. know, which is one, by the way, and I love that score, The Old Jevil Moon. Oh, I, mean, I just love that score. Oh, it's an score. incredible score. Oh. And, you know, entirely by Jews, as was Brigadoon. I mean, and yet there's, you know, it's, it's set, uh, I mean, uh, Brigadoon is set in the Scottish Highlands, and uh, Finian's Rainbow is set in the American South with a leprechaun. I mean, they're, they're the least right. Jewish things you could ever imagine. And, and yet, if you listen to the music, if you're like me, and you grew up, uh, you know, in terms of uh, synagogue music and cantorial music, you hear that they were written by Jews. So let me ask you, Jesse Green, and I was reading this. I, too, grew up as a conservative Jew. Talk to me a little bit about about the ambivalence of yeah. the 20th century Jewish person in the arts, in Broadway, in theater, the ambivalence. Well, there's, you know, different kinds of ambivalence. For instance, right now, there's a whole different uh, layer of ambivalence. We certainly had people who, having agreed to be in this photograph, then became worried about being in the photograph after really? the, the events of October. Oh. Yes. I mean, um, you know, I, I too was concerned. You know, we were making a very big statement at a time when anti-Semitism seemed to be about to, you know, run amok. 
Um, and uh, so the, the, this is the actual, this is the push pull of assimilating into uh, American culture. You, on the one hand, you may fear that there's danger in uh, sort of uh, proclaiming yourself to be a member of a traditionally maligned and uh, violently treated minority. And also, you may not wish to be identified aesthetically with only one thing. As we were saying about Arthur Miller, he didn't want to be the playwright of the Jews. He wanted to be the playwright of Americans. And Jews assimilating into America didn't. My own grandmother, I mean, her first her first priority upon getting here was to lose her accent. She didn't yeah. want, you know, she always said to me, I didn't want to be a greenhorn. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she got rid of it, even though she spoke not a word of English when she arrived here at age 10 or whatever she was. So um, in order, there was a strong feeling that in order to, to succeed, you had to erase any obvious signifiers of your Jewishness and do your Jewishness in private. But at the same time, growing up in this very rich and conflicted world of, of uh, assimilation and immigration, as many other minorities in our country have experienced and gone through, this is the formation of your dramatic imagination, and you want to portray it. So what do you do? For many people, for many years, you translated it into another form that might seem to be more palatable to a wide, wider audiences whom you needed in order to sell tickets, despite the large number of Jewish theater goers in New York. And, and in doing so, what I argue in this piece is to some extent Jews allowed themselves to hide or disappear behind the product they were creating. Well, and you also say the irony is that more shows than ever, both premieres and revivals, seem to be dealing with anti-Semitism, but you say they rarely get to the heart of the issue, which is the sometimes self-imposed and viciously enforced invisibility of Jewishness, the result of a fear of offense or habit of disguise that evolved as a kind of protection for Jews both on stage and off. And then you say that you were called a kike, and that's what stopped your obsession, at least in public, with Fiddler of the Roof. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't talk about Fiddler in, in uh, grade mm. school anymore after yeah, that event. Right. Um, so, you know, in my own life, I've experienced that. But I think is some, something new is happening, uh, perhaps in uh, response to the rise in anti-Semitism over recent years, and particularly immediately this, this year. But I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about it, because a lot of the Jewish content we get now 
is what you might call trauma content. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of it is Holocaust-based or otherwise, uh, you know, uh, victimology. And, you know, this is a part of our history. We can't deny it, and it ought to be dramatized. But I think what I was getting at was that I'm also looking for new work that uh, presents Jewishness as a way of moving forward uh, and not focusing completely on the traumas that we've all, you know, been raised in. I don't know about you. Well, to me, to me, the best was Neil Simon. I mean, I think Woody (laughs) Allen, I think Woody Allen's a pervert, but his early work is still outstanding. Uh, And of course, Jerome Robbins and Fiddler on the Roof and all of the glorious songwriters to me, and even Seinfeld to me, that was to me, Judaism, even though Seinfeld is a great example of people who were obviously some of them anyway, Jews and wouldn't say it. It was astonishing how much they skirted around the obvious. But um, but I just, to me, the best part of being a Jew is to laugh at oneself. And that's well, what Neil Simon yeah. did so brilliantly, brilliantly. So so I, one of the plays that I signaled out this year for my, my best of 2023 list in my other function as the uh, theater critic for the time was this piece called Just for Us by Alex Edelman. I don't know if you saw it. I haven't seen it, but uh, my kids saw it. They liked it. They liked it. Yeah. So he's a comedian. And he, and, right. Uh, this is a story about his uh, infiltrating uh, a, a white supremacist group um, that he had sort of been baiting online. And then he kind of went undercover to see what it would be like. And it's very funny. And it addresses Jewish issues in the most forthright way. And it also addresses the dangers of Jewishness in our world today. But it isn't, it's not uh, uh, mired right. in the historical horror, right. Right. Of, uh, which right. we all know if we're Jews. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and I don't, I, I really loved it for that reason. And it really asked questions that go beyond that. It asked questions like, if forgiveness and understanding and reaching out to others is an important Jewish concept, which most of us believe it is, and repairing the world, how far does that extend? And does it extend to your own uh, issues, your own vanity in his case? And he went into this thinking somehow he might convert these Nazis into a, you know, into being good liberals. He failed. He failed. Um, okay. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, that, that, I'm not putting down any other shows, but I, I am very encouraged by the idea that we can have a flowering of work in the theater by and about Jews that is about a wider range of our lives than just the Holocaust and the atrocities of anti-Semitism. Well, and I think, Jesse Green, to your point, when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, the Jewish theater was funny. It was musical. It was positive. It was post-war, but it wasn't about the war, maybe because the people yes, weren't I, ready to I, deal with it. I completely agree. But, you know, ironically, the leading Jewish critics of the day completely uh, disowned that material as being cheap and meretricious. So oh. one of the points I make is that for a very long time, you were damned if you did and damned if you didn't as a Jew in the American theater. Very interesting. Hey, by the way, Jesse Green, this is, I want to ask you this because this must come up a lot in your thinking about casting. There's a, Mm, there's sort of an, there's sort of an irony, double standard, triple standard here going on, which is this colorblind casting is supposedly in there 
so that I could cast, and I saw this actually at the Asolo Theater in Sarasota, I saw um, the Marion the Librarian in Iowa of mm-hmm. 1922 was black with Harold Hill being white, and I was supposed to, as an audience member, completely overlook the obviousness of the improbability of that and just go with the musical. So there's this idea that we should do colorblind casting and the audience will go for it and it's great. And then there's this other idea that you're so that you so that you can't culturally appropriate somebody else's mm-hmm. experience by acting that experience, which I also find to be crazy. I'm sort of somewhere in the middle where if it's very improbable you should do something in line with the story, but an actor should be able to act and inhabit another character. But where are you on this? Well, I am an idealist for the future, which is to say I dream of a day when anyone can play anyone. Um, I recognize that we are not there yet. So, for instance, to have a white man today play uh, Othello, Uh would be a travesty. Um, On the other hand, it's not symmetrical. I don't think it's a travesty that we had Adrian Lester, a a wonderful actor who's black, play one of the Lehman brothers in the Lehman trilogy. Interesting. Um, Okay. Okay. And and yet, I mean, I'm going to give you as many hands as Tevye does in his speeches. On the other, other, other hand, you know, um, there's, there's, you know, a role like Fanny Bryce. Um, you know, should should she be played by a non-Jewish performer? Uh, in this recent production on Broadway, we had Jewish performers, and I think you could hear that they were Jewish and knew what they were talking about. I think there are things that people may bring to a role based on their identification with the characteristics of the role that someone else might not. But that said, I won't say this. I grew up, I'm gay. I grew up never seeing a gay character on television, in theater, or anywhere, unless it was like Paul Lind, and that wasn't exactly mm. a role model. Right. I mean, he was funny. And also, he wasn't even I... outwardly gay. He was gay with a wink-wink. No. Wink. He never actually exactly. told anybody he was gay. Yeah, yeah. But that doesn't mean I didn't understand things about marriage and love and parenting and all of the issues of humanity by watching plays about straight people. I did. You learn... When you're in any minority, including Jews watching Arthur Miller when he's not giving you Jewish characters, you learn how to triangulate between your experience and the stories of other people uh, who who you use as a way of understanding yourself. And I think this is a very Jewish thing to look into the world, see other people. Try not to be too afraid of them, although, you know, my grandmother was very afraid of the Cossacks coming 100 yeah, years later. Yeah. And and <laughs> see what you can learn about them and therefore about yourself. I, I want a day when I not only get to see stories about other people, but have other people be in my stories as well. So I, I agree with that. I agree with that. Okay, good. We're on the same yeah. page. No, I, I agree with that. I just, I was a little disconcerted by seeing uh, the librarian you know, and yeah. she was a magnificent performer because I thought it was it was a story about small minded pettiness in Iowa in yeah. the 1920s. And I thought, is anybody going to overlook the fact that this is a black and white? But OK, we, we suspend disbelief and we move on. But I thought the criticism of um, Bradley Cooper for having for playing Leonard Bernstein and, and I haven't seen him in the role was outrageous. I mean, 
It's an actor, for goodness sake. He can do it however he wants. Right? It's, it's ridiculous. I, I sort of quickly slam that in this piece and move on. Uh, you know, I, I just want to say about that, that music man, it, it is, that, that is a good counter-argument only because the text of the music man doesn't provide uh, the actors a way to handle the blackness Correct. of that character. Correct. It's, it's not that it's, she's not good or that she might not be able to fulfill all the demands, emotional demands and vocal demands written into the part. But there is something of a question mark you might be left with, especially if she sings the song uh, called My White Knight, which when black <laughs> actresses do that part, they often leave out for obvious reasons. Oh, um, do they so, really uh, leave know, that? It's a, it's a beautiful song. Shirley Jones did a great my, job. One of my the favorite songs Love in the score, but you can't, yeah. you can't have a black actress sing that without comment, without having text that would explain what she means by it. And it's not there, so you can't do it. Um, But we're going to have a period of time where we have to make all kinds of adjustments as we get to, you know, that that desired time when we we all understand that we're connected to everyone and any actor can play any person. We're not there yet. Jesse Green, thank you so much. It's a wonderful, wonderful piece. You can get it online. Uh, Let us tell you a story. Here we are. What would American theater be without its Jewish actors, playwrights and directors? And for the record, we would have almost no music. Hmm. We would have almost no music. We would have no Lerner Not, and Lowe. Yeah. We'd have no Rodgers and Hammerstein or Rodgers and Hart. We'd have no Jerome Kern. The only one we would have is Cole Porter. And he was good, <laughs> but he wasn't everybody. We wouldn't have Irving Berlin. That, uh, I mean, it goes on and on. Cole Porter, even Cole Porter, that Ur Wasp from Indiana, said that to write a hit tune, you have to write a Jewish tune. Is that right? Yes. That's great. That's great. Jesse Green, thanks so much. Really wonderful. And, oh, by the way, before I let you go, do I have a must-see this season? I'm going to the public theater on Sunday. Have you seen what's there yet? I forgot the name, but I'm going to see a show at 1.30 at the public theater, the Joseph Papp Theater. Um, uh, Hell's Kitchen, I think you might No, no, no. Something like, no, it's a different Manahatta? Yes, Manahatta. Because a friend of mine is in the cast. Uh, Enrico Nassi is in the cast. He plays the Native American. He is a Native American, speaking of casting. And um, he's a dear friend of mine, and he was cast out west, and they brought him over. So I'm going to see it on Sunday. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it yet. Uh, we had one of our other critics review it. I look forward to seeing it in the next couple of weeks. Okay. And anything that I can't miss right now on Broadway? Anything I need to see? Uh, I think you've probably seen everything you need to see. I'm, I, I'm, I'm hedging just because I'm writing three reviews this weekend and I right. can't really talk about it. All them. right, all right. I'll have to read them. All, all right, have to you're read not going to get any secrets out of me. Okay, Jesse Green of the New York Times. Thank you so much for coming on. Have a great weekend. Happy Hanukkah to you. Thank Happy you. Hanukkah, Lisa. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. We'll be right back. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends. And as always, feel free to contact me at Lisa at LisaWexler.com.